This is The Future Of, where experts share their vision of the future and how their work is helping shape it for the better. I'm David Blaney. Space exploration has led to a greater understanding of planet Earth, our solar system and our place in the universe, but there's still much to be discovered. To help uncover some of the greatest cosmic mysteries, space agencies around the world are planning missions to explore neighbouring planets, photograph our own planet and even search for extraterrestrial life. To discuss the future of space exploration, with me today is Professor Phil Bland, who leads Curtin University's Space Science and Technology Centre and is one of the joint winners of the 2019 Scientists of the Year Award. Thank you very much for joining me today, Phil. Great to be here. Have we gotten any closer to discovering life beyond Earth? Bit of a big question to begin with. That is a big question to begin with, yeah. So uh, I would say, yeah, I would say that uh, we are actually kind of the first generation that, that will we'll find out, you know, we might not discover it, but we'll find out how lonely the universe is. Um, we'll be able to, I think within the next 20 years, we'll have a pretty decent idea if there's been life on Mars. Um, we, within the next 30 or 40, um, whether there's any traces of anything on the icy satellites around um, Jupiter and Saturn. And what's kind of wacky is that really any, any day now, uh, we're, we're almost at the point where uh, we have enough resolution in telescopes to be able to image individual um, Earth-sized planets around other stars. And, and when we can do that, we can actually get an idea of what their atmosphere is made of. And life shifts the composition of an atmosphere of a planet. So life is, um, so an atmosphere of a planet, basically you can tell just by looking at it from 50 light years away, uh, whether that planet has a big biosphere or not. So it's kind of wacky, but it, it's, you know, within, if maybe even not, maybe not now, but within a couple of years, literally a couple of years, uh, there's the potential that that'll be the morning's news, that um, we've discovered a biosphere on another planet, which would obviously change things quite a lot about... Quite horrifying news. Yeah, oh no, it'd be fantastic. What do you mean? That'd be awesome. Um, it would instantly become, you know, the focus of, uh, yeah, massive amount of, uh, of research. But um, within, you know, a couple of decades after that, we would have done that enough times to planets that look like good candidates for life, that we would be able to say, okay, maybe it's not as common as we thought. Maybe we're, it's more lonely than, uh, than we thought, which would be interesting. Which is equally horrifying. Either way, it's hot. I don't either, like the idea way. that it's lonely. Yeah, I like the idea that there's lots of stuff out there. So, mm. yeah. And you mentioned telescopes that can look at planets orbiting other stars. Is that within our own galaxy or is that also in, in other galaxies? Uh, yeah, that's within our own galaxy. And, um, and it's fascinating. I mean, it's fascinating for me. You know, when I was an undergraduate, we, we, didn't, we didn't know whether there were other planets in the... We didn't, you know, maybe the only planets in the universe are the ones orbiting our sun. Uh, and now it's, I don't know, 6,000 that have been discovered, so many that we think that, you know, there are certainly more planets in the galaxy than there are stars, um, that it's just a normal part of star formation. 
What can we learn from looking at meteorites? I've studied meteorites for pretty much my entire professional career. Uh, the, the, the reason, there are many reasons that make them interesting. Um, we have meteorites from Mars and we've never, you know, recovered, we've never been to Mars with a spacecraft and brought rocks back. So uh, having basically free samples of Mars is awesome. Um, but the ones that I've always found interesting are basically the ones that are the oldest ones. So the, uh, we've got meteorites that date from, uh, or some of the elements of them, from the components of them, from even before the sun started to shine. Um, so we've got, we can see all the way back to the processes that, that built planets. And uh, I've always found that fascinating, like how basically, you know, how we got a solar system. Um, they, they record all those processes. So we'll go back, I guess, perhaps to a, a little bit of Astronomy 101. What's the difference between a, a comet, an asteroid, a meteor, and a meteorite? Right. So, uh, uh, so um, the... So apologies, if it is, apologies, the question is a little bit beneath your level no, of expertise. No, not at all. I mean, it's, uh, this is kind of thing that, you know, people ask a lot. And so a comet uh, is an object that we can see is currently kind of degassing volatiles, you know, uh, um, ice, water, whatever, into, uh, into space. So, the, so it's been, um, you know, the solar wind is hitting it and you get these particles, this volatile material coming off. Uh, an asteroid is, is an object that where that's not happening. Now, that doesn't mean it's not got ice in it, it just means we're not observing it doing that at that time. Um, the a meteorite uh, is a object that if we knocked it off an uh, asteroid or a comet and it got through the Earth's atmosphere and landed on the Earth, then it's a meteorite. Um, but it's basically the same composition. It's made it through the atmosphere. Uh, a fireball is the light that is given off by a big chunk of rock as it's coming through the atmosphere, not technically the rock itself. So there's all these kind of, you know, finicky little uh, classifications. It's funny how they always tend to land inside craters. <laughs> they, uh, not always. If they're, hopefully if they're small enough, they don't make a crater. Um, and, uh, and that's good news for us. What is a, uh, what, what's a CubeSat and what does it do? How's it, how's it different to the Optus D1 that we get TV from space from? Right. So, uh, so um, CubeSats are, so basically um, the, to, to get why this is a useful, um, uh, why these things, these small satellites came into, into being, it's important to realize kind of how you launch a satellite and how it gets into orbit around the Earth. So basically, if it's a larger spacecraft, um, then you know, that gets packed into the, what we call the fairing on top of a rocket, which is kind of the, the, you know, the shield that protects it as it's going out of the atmosphere. And there's a special kind of system purpose built to kind of blip that unique spacecraft, that bespoke spacecraft, um, off in a space away from the rest of the, the rocket. Um, and that's kind of that whole that whole structure around the spacecraft uh, is it's a it's kind of finicky and expensive to build that brand new every single time. So. So it was, the idea was that if we have essentially the same form factor for a spacecraft, 
and, and this is where you know these like CubeSats came in, uh, which is really just a 10 by 10 by 10 centimeter um, basic unit, and then you can have a one U, one 10 by 10 by 10, and multiply that up. But there'd be there'd be standard sized racks that could fit on top of a spacecraft on top of the launch vehicle and blip those out into space. So it simply saves that the cash that you would have to um, spend there to build a unique one. And what can we use them for? Well, I mean, people have uh, tried to use them for a whole bunch of the same source of jobs as larger spacecraft. Whereas on a larger spacecraft, um, you might have a lot of different payloads doing a lot of different jobs. CubeSats are kind of good for doing you know, one thing uh, reasonably well. They're much cheaper to build. They're much cheaper to launch. Um, so then if you're clever, uh, you try and get as much possible payload space in that thing as you can. So you can have a, a payload, whether it's a camera or some other sensor, that's, that's, you can get it almost as good as what would go on a bigger satellite, which is much more expensive to launch. And what are we using them for today? Yeah, so, um, so you've got CubeSats. Uh, for instance, you've got a constellation of CubeSats now uh, that's job is to image the entire Earth on a, on a very regular basis. So, uh, so anyone who wants to know it, so it's, it's not like you know, Google Earth, it's basically um, if Google Earth was updated uh, every single day. Uh, so you had basically, you know, a kind of an image of the Earth every day. It's not quite there yet, but that's the concept. So you can build like much larger constellations than you would uh, ordinarily with larger satellites, and and you know, kind of global wireless and things like that. Wi-Fi, sorry, wireless dates me a little bit, but uh, global Wi-Fi. Um, you can do, you can do, you know, people have used them for um, for radar. Um, so compared to, say, your sort of Iridium satellite, but much more capable for things like the internet, that sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. So, so really, you know, there's kind of niches that they're really good in, and that kind of constellation uh, is a really nice niche. Um, th that's one area that they're good for, yeah. What are the challenges, what are some of the challenges that we face when it comes to space exploration, other than, of course, the... Well, actually, including, of course, the uh, prohibitively high costs. Yeah, I mean, um, that it's, it's a harsh environment. And, and so, you know, any spacecraft that kind of leaves that, that gets out of the Earth's uh, magnetic field, so, so our magnetic field protects us from, uh, from solar radiation and cosmic radiation, um, you're in a, you know, that's a hard radiation environment. And, uh, and astronauts have to think about that if they go to the moon or Mars. Um, but all spacecraft have to deal with that. If they go. Airplanes have to deal with it as well. Uh, Maybe yeah. to a lesser extent, but you can't fly too often. It's at a, but at a much less, yeah. If you go in up, even in you know, low Earth orbit, it's a much more benign environment than if you're going, uh, than if you're going to the moon. So if you're going mm. to the moon, you need really uh, seriously hardened electronics to, um, to cope with being bombarded by high radiation. So that's one thing. Um, and then the other thing is really having systems that can, that can operate uh, intelligently without you having to kind of, you know, check them all the time. So, uh, I mean, great example of that was uh, um, the 
NASA landing the Curiosity rover, right? Which was, you know, this incredibly complicated engineering series of, uh, of, of, of steps to get that big rover on the ground. And, and it was, you know, really complex series of steps. Uh, the, uh, the spacecraft came through the atmosphere, kind of had to steer itself. Uh, it had to drop off part of its shell to release the, um, the, the lander and then this, what they call the sky hook that could kind of lower it down while it was firing retro rockets. And then because it couldn't drop onto the lander, it, it had to detach and kind of steer itself away. Uh, it was an incredibly complicated series of steps that basically all had to happen automatically. That's really hard. So it could mean that in the future we'll be having, uh, well, I guess fewer unsuccessful landings. Uh, well, actually, I mean, really the, the opposite. Um, so, uh, oh, so more things could go wrong or? No, sorry, you said we'll have We'll have oh, fewer, unsuccessful, fewer unsuccessful. I'm fewer sorry. Unsuccessful there was a, landings, that's right. Yeah, that was a bit of a double negative. Exactly. Sorry, I'm uh, not enough coffee. So, uh, <laughs> um, yes, absolutely. So, um, there used to be, you know, NASA had uh, a number of uh, unsuccessful Mars missions. I think, you know, they're now on a run of, I don't know, the last six or eight have been, uh, have been successful. So, uh, Mars is really hard, and uh, but it's, you know, they know enough now, and, and I like to say we know enough, but you know, they've had enough experience now that you can kind of anticipate that they can, they can hit most of the sort of critical um, issues. Yeah. Why is Mars so much harder than the moon, other than of course it's, I mean, it's further away, obviously. Yeah, uh, so Mars is harder because it's got, uh, so for the moon, uh, the moon's not got much gravity. So you can, uh, if you've got a lander, then you can, you can kind of, pack in enough, uh, enough retro rockets to decelerate something, land on the surface, and you're not struggling to kind of keep, keep it, you know, the moon's gravity isn't like dragging you down to crash it. The problem with Mars is that, that it's got an atmosphere, but it's so thin that actually uh, it doesn't, unless you're a really small, unless you're quite a small lander, uh, it doesn't help you an awful lot. You so, can't use like a parachute, for example. Right. So you can if it's small, but if you're if you're bigger, then uh, then you need something more complicated. And uh, and and it's just Mars is so this kind of uh, annoying little combination of, uh, of of stuff there. It's big, so it's got more gravity. It's got an atmosphere, so you can decelerate a little bit. But the atmosphere isn't dense enough that you've got you can have parachutes that are big enough to land something big. Blah blah blah. Why is um, why is Mars such a, such a big focus for space agencies? Well, NASA in particular. Yeah, I mean, uh, so Mars is fascinating because it's you know for so long, for like uh, 150 years, people have wondered, okay, is there life on Mars, right? And and uh, and obviously, you know, way back when, people got quite optimistic about that. Um, well, if you're H.G. Wells, not necessarily optimistic, you know, maybe, but um, but we know now there's not, you know, there's probably not been complex life on Mars, um, but we've, you know, there's still evidence that for a decent amount of time, Mars had equable conditions, that if you put terrestrial bugs on Mars uh, a couple of billion years ago, they would have 
been quite happy. So it's the question is, did life arise independently on Mars? And, and having a yes or no to that um, would basically answer that question about, are we, you know, how lonely is the universe? If you have two um, independent, uh, if life can arise in two places independently in our solar system, it means it's everywhere. Do you see any Australian missions to the moon or the Mars? What do, what do you see the Australian Space Agency getting up to? Yeah, definitely. So, uh, uh, I mean, actually, you know, we're doing our own uh, at the moment. So uh, um, we have a program uh, building our own uh, CubeSats, which is going really well. Uh, the uh, uh, we're launching our first one via with a, a launch provider that's going to send it out of the uh, International Space Station. It'll be happening either end of this year or early, early next, um, and that'll be building to a, uh, a lunar orbiter in four or five years' time. So a CubeSat-sized lunar orbiter, uh, and we've got. Uh, a, we're working with NASA. They'll be hopefully delivering that to lunar orbit for us, and ESA are going to be doing mission control, which is really nice. Um, so we've got a concept around that. We, we've also got industry uh, collaborators on that um, proposal as well. So that's us. Um, hopefully the agency will be um, doing uh, other missions as well. There's um, because. NASA's got a program now called Artemis, which is going back to the moon, uh, but the idea is going back to the moon to stay and then on to Mars. Um, there's a lot more resources going to the moon, uh, which, includes, which includes the ability to kind of get ride along on NASA orbiters or NASA landers. So we can kind of get uh, access to places that we could never get, you know, three or four years ago. Uh, but now we can expect that we can get to lunar orbit without too much hassle. Who exactly owns space? Who's what can we do on the moon? Yeah, no. So that's a really good question. It's there are a uh, number of international treaties around. And obviously, for a um, for a planetary scientist, this is kind of pushing the envelope of my specialty. <laughs> but, uh, but there's a number of international treaties around uh, around kind of ownership or non-ownership of, of uh, heavenly bodies, whether it's asteroids or the moon. Um, if, it's for, if it's for scientific use, then, um, then there's not an issue. Um, we haven't really solved, uh, but it's not, a lot of that stuff was from, you know, a lot of that legislation, that international legislation um, was, from the, was from the 60s. People really didn't think about that there would be kind of industrial applications that we'd be wanting to mine asteroids. So there would be companies maybe that would be wanting to mine ice on the moon, convert it into fuel, and sell that fuel to NASA. Right? No one had any of these concepts in mind. So, uh, um, so a lot of people now are giving a lot of thought to how can we amend that existing legislation to give industry uh, a, a access to um, to that, you know. It'd be quite interesting because yeah. when you dig stuff out of the ground in Western Australia, the um, government gets a royalty from it. Um, and if someone do, goes space mining, what happens to that? Who uh, 
Yeah. It benefits ultimately. I mean, I think, uh, like I say, like right now, you know, so NASA can go to the moon and set up a base and mine ice and, uh, and refuel their own rockets and that's all fine. And anyone can do that. Uh, but, um, but owning any of it and selling any of it, um, there are, there are international treaties around that. And, and I'm sure that some of that will be resolved in the next few years because there are so many opportunities there. Um, it'd be bonkers not to. Do you see us, us conquering Mars anytime soon? I, well, I think so. I, uh, I, think, um, I think it'll be, uh, it'll be the moon first. That's a sensible thing to do. Um, a bit I mean, closer. A bit, yeah. A bit less out of the way. And, and you, know, we, you know, we built up a lot of kind of uh, institutional knowledge with Apollo uh, of just like how to do stuff. Right, how to do stuff in space, how learning kind of on the job. We lost all of that, so um, we've got to relearn all of that. You don't want to learn that, um, and then be in a place where you have to wait eighteen months to get home again. Uh, much nicer to do it when you've just got a three month, three day trip. So, uh, so that's a much better place to learn. Um, Reminds me of a certain movie. But right, exactly. But uh, but still. You know the same hard conditions, but but the ability to kind of pull people out. Uh, but I think I think absolutely um, Mars next. Uh, I uh, um, personally I don't think we'll be able to answer the question of was there life on Mars? Is there life on Mars without putting people there? Um, you know we can send as many rovers as you like, uh, but you know a human can walk in a day and look at more rocks than uh, than probably all the rovers that have ever been there. Really? Yeah, well, yeah. And because, you know, it doesn't matter how many, like, you know, if I'm walking around here, I'm like perfect pattern recognition system with a geology hammer and a hand lens. Uh, I have more resources than any rover that's ever been, ever been put there. Give me a little, uh, um, give me a little cart to trek around in and I can, you know, I'll see a weird rock over there. Uh, Can't really do that with a rover. They're not quite smart enough. No. And so, and I don't yes. think, you know, they ever will be. So uh, a lot of people don't realize that, you know, Apollo was the most expensive uh, set of missions that there's ever been. But in terms of kind of science output for a given mission, uh, it was actually the best value for money. So we, really? we so many papers came out of Apollo, so much knowledge came out of Apollo, and still is from the samples that, that the astronauts brought back, um, far more than on any other uh, mission. So um, I, think, I think sending people to Mars, supplemented by, you know, with, um, with robotic uh, assets, that's by far the best way to do it. And I think that'll answer the question. You've got people on Mars for 18 months. Um, main thing they're gonna be doing well, if I was one of them, is uh, is running around with a geology hammer looking for tiny fossils. Yeah, um, which would be awesome. I really hope that that happens in my lifetime. I was born uh, three months before uh, the moon landing, um, so my old man actually did hold me up. Um, you know, obviously those neurons aren't still connected, but I did see it. Um, it'd be kind of nice to see uh, humans land on Mars before I check out. So that means you were born in 66. 
69. Oh, 16. Oh, sorry, three months, not three years. My, my mum was born in 63, so she right. actually saw it yeah, in, no, in school. No. So I don't, that's it. I have no memory Lucky. of it. But, uh, but, um, but yeah, did, uh, but I, t I did see it, you know, with my eyes. What is, um, well, Feel free to uh, issue a, a public call to action for more funding. Why is space exploration so important? Space exploration does um, does a whole bunch of things, and uh, and and I think you can argue it from so many different angles. Um, it's it's kind of the ultimate in in collaborative international endeavours, right? So uh, um, so you know I do remember um, the docking of the Soviet spacecraft and the NASA spacecraft uh, at the height of the Cold War um, and the astronauts and cosmonauts shaking hands through uh, through the, that port and uh, and that kind of thing you know it, it's the International Space Station there's a Russian module on there um, Russian rockets have been launching astronauts into space through all of the um, tensions and uh, it's a great way of, of pulling governments and researchers together. I think there's nothing like space exploration for getting people excited, uh, for inspiring members of the public, for having for that kind of a, a national pride achievement that makes people just stand a little taller that day, um, for, uh, um, for getting students excited about, about doing science and engineering. I got into science because of the Apollo missions and Carl Sagan, uh, the uh, um, it it drives innovation. Um, so we here at Curtin uh, have an amazing team of PhD students and undergrads that are building our spacecraft, and and they're super excited about that um, because as well as the stuff we're doing with industry uh, with those spacecraft. Um, you know, we have all of those industry collaborations, we can pull them together in the end to have a, a, a science outcome, which is getting to the moon. Uh, and, uh, and that, you know, the idea that you've got um, WA students that can do a degree and build a spacecraft that's going to get to the moon, uh, that gets them pretty excited, and, and it should do. So, uh, so I think for all those reasons, and I think you know, a, a thing that people don't realize is that um, that NASA spends all those other agencies, every agency uh, spends money on those missions for that kind of reason. It's for you know, it's to kind of further um, research, but it's not you know, if it was simply to make um, people like Phil Bland happy, then uh, then there wouldn't be. $20 billion worth of assets orbiting Mars right now and on the surface. Um, all of those spacecraft are built by um, space industry contractors. Uh, the instruments on them are uh, mostly built by really advanced uh, and capable engineering, uh, university engineering teams. All those students go into jobs in space industries in their countries. Uh, the hardware that they build uh, gets into those uh, space industries uh, one way or another. Um, it's, there's a return on investment that's like a, 
I think you get a, you know, ESA and NASA have calculated it. I think it's about, you know, $5 out for every dollar in. Um, so when people think that, uh, that, that space, you know, why are we putting money into space versus something else? Um, it's actually a, a great investment in an economy as well as all that other stuff. I'm obviously a big fan of the other stuff, um, but we make a lot of money out of, uh, out of investing in missions. Gee, in this economy, that would be a, that's a great return. And um, what, what are you working on now, research-wise? Yeah, so uh, uh, so we're doing uh, a bunch of different things. I think uh, we're doing a project with uh, so actually an interesting kind of um, technology transfer one. Uh, we've, we're kind of well known for a project called the Desert Fireball Network, where we uh, track meteorites coming through the atmosphere, work out where they've come from in the solar system, and then where they land. We use these kind of really tough observatories that we can put out in the bush and uh, and leave for a couple of years without, and they just take images every night. And it turns out that those observatories are actually really, really good for also tracking satellites. And that's a big deal so that we can get, in the end, some sort of space traffic control. So we won't have kind of, uh, you know, a nightmare with uh, overcrowding low Earth orbit or generating debris. Um, so we've been working with uh, Lockheed Martin for um, three years now on translating that knowledge from, you know, tracking meteorites. I mean, you don't really get more blue sky than that to something that is, uh, is a great outcome for them and hopefully, um, you know, the world generally if we've got a solution to tracking satellites. So that's one thing. Then uh, I'm really excited about the um, CubeSat program as well. I can't wait to get our first one up. Uh, I hope we've got enough money in the kitty so that we can take all of those students to, uh, uh, to the launch so we can see it fly. I think that'd be great. And I've got to say, I do, uh, we're also doing a program uh, called the uh, Global Fireball Observatory, which is, which is kind of expanding the DFN colleague of mine is, this is awesome. She's, uh, um, she's working on, uh, on a computer, like intelligent system to uh, count every single crater on Mars uh, so that we can work out the age of the surface at really fine resolution. A um, bunch of my colleagues are analyzing uh, material returned by spacecraft. Uh, one of my colleagues is on the NASA InSight mission, um, which is awesome, uh, and uh, and I'm you know I'm really excited about where we're going to go with the uh, CubeSat stuff and uh, and a lunar orbiter. I got to say I do look at the moon a little bit differently now um, because I do I am pretty. I know that we could, uh, I know that we could get there, that we have the capacity to do that. So that's very exciting to me. Thank you very much, Phil, for coming in and for sharing your knowledge on this topic. Pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to The Future Of, a podcast powered by Curtin University. If you have any questions about today's topic, please feel free to get in touch by following the links in the show notes. Bye for now.